So this was really a form of indentured servanthood. It wasn't slavery as we think of that term. This was actually an anti-poverty program. <laughs> it was an anti-poverty program. We're going to completely ignore all of the people who thought the Bible justified slavery and used the Bible to justify them owning slaves in America. Why we would ignore that in this argument, I don't know. Let's talk about a couple of those philosophy arguments from 101 that are constantly trotted out. I've had similar experiences. The most common one that I've heard, of course, is the problem of evil, the suggestion that how can God be good if so much evil takes place in the world? Yeah. The more sophisticated version of the argument to me is not the problem of human evil, which seems pretty easily disposable, but the, the problem of natural yes. evil things happening to children, a child yes. with cancer. How does a good God rule over a world in which children die of, of natural causes, in which kids are born with Tay-Sachs, in which horrible things happen to good people? Yeah. Okay, so I understand the question. And I think that a lot of atheists fall into this pit hole of using the word evil. I have a video about the word evil, and I made one a long ago, long ago on my channel. If you can find it, I definitely recommend that you go check it out. But the reason I don't like to use the word evil is because evil implies some kind of uh, religious tone. Like evil is a word that is definitely loaded with religious uh, weight. It, it comes with a lot of baggage. Um, there are things we don't like. There are things that we do like, and there are things that we really don't like. And those are the things that we usually call evil. But most of this is due to perception. You know, um, things that we consider to be evil, some people might consider to be good. I want you to follow my line of logic here. And nor am I justifying it. A guy goes in and shoot. This is an example. A guy goes into a school and shoots up a school. Everybody would consider that to be evil. They decide at the school that they're going to beef up security and they're going to hire more security officers in order to monitor those schools. There is a guy who needs a job who's probably going broke right now, just got himself a new job. Now he can feed his family. And now he's a security officer working at the school. An evil action took place, but somebody benefited from that action. And to somebody, good came from that action. That person may not necessarily think of it as evil. They might think that something good happened to them, even though most of us would agree that the action that took place was an evil action. But it's not to say there are good and evil. Most of these things are black and white. And it's all about perception, opinion, and our subjective opinions on the actions that are taking place. Yes. In dealing with this problem, I think it's really important that we distinguish between what I call the intellectual problem of evil and the emotional problem of evil. There is no doubt that emotionally... Thank you for the super sticker, uh, Afro-humanist. You the bomb, girl. You the bomb. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, what's up, your best buddy? I'm surprised at the poll. <laughs> your poll. <laughs> uh, actually, I haven't even checked the poll out in a second. I'm going to go check it out after this video. But media hypes devil worship. What it do, JJ? What's up, Kermit the Killer? Uh, can't hang for long because I got to call the fam, but wanted to stop by and show our little support. Hit the like button, y'all. Appreciate it, man. Take care of the fam. Tell the fam, Javier said, what's up? Uh, sorry, Javier. I have to pull over the answer. I'm listening while driving. Okay, bro, do your thing. Uh, do your thing. Let's get to it. Uh, the evil and suffering in the world make it very difficult to believe 
in God. It's a tremendous emotional obstacle. But intellectually, considered dispassionately as a philosophical problem, it's extraordinarily difficult to show that there's either any inconsistency or improbability between the existence of an all-loving, all-powerful God and the evil and suffering in the world. The atheist would have to show that it is either impossible or improbable that God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting the natural and moral evil in the world. And I, I think that look, William Lane Craig is wrong here. Atheists don't have to show anything. Atheists are not the ones setting up a proposition. The person who can makes a claim has the 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 they have to back up the claim. If I come to you and say I have a red car in my garage, it's not up to you to prove that my car in my garage is red or that I have a red uh, car in the garage at all. It's my I have the obligation to prove to you that my statement is true. And I just don't believe that you can put the the blame on the atheist to disprove something that you made a claim about because the claim is made on your end and you're the one claiming that God is all of these things. So you should have to go by and prove it. But the problem is you can't be a religious person and argue that you can prove that God is all loving and God is all good. But at the same time, making the claim that God, no one knows the way of God and nobody knows the mind of God. You can't have it both ways. Either you know the mind of God and you know the ways of God, then you can prove that God is all good and all powerful. Or you don't know the mind of God and you don't know the ways of God. Therefore, you can never make the claim that God is all loving and all good. It just is incompatible. But yet these are two claims made in the Christian worldview. How could he possibly show that? We're simply not in a position to make those kind of probability judgments with any confidence. And so I think that the problem of evil, as difficult as it may be emotionally, intellectually, it lays a burden of proof on the shoulders of the atheist, which is so heavy that it's funny because I just spoke about the burden of proof. I basically talked about the person making the claim had the burden of proof to provide evidence for it. And we, we see this in science all the time. Like if Einstein made a, a conclusion or he had a theory, he had to back it up. He had to prove that his theory was right. It wasn't everybody else's responsibility to, to disprove or prove Einstein's theory. It was Einstein who had the, the, the burden of proof. But yet, William Lane Craig turns right around and actually used the burden of proof on the atheist when he's completely out of line here. He, he's just wrong. But it has proved to be unsustainable. And these days, the, the other argument that is brought up an enormous amount is the supposed backwardness of the Bible itself and biblical morality. This happens largely mm -hmm. with regard to, for example, homosexual marriage. Uh, it's been brought up uh, with regard to abortion, which I think is more, again, easily disposable because I think there's a solid secular yeah. argument in favor of, of protection of human life. But homosexual marriage is the one that, that most often comes up. You also hear arguments that the Bible permits slavery. Uh, so if the Bible is so wonderful, then why are there all these weird sections of the Bible where it talks about wiping peoples from the earth, where it talks about, mm -hmm. where it talks about enslaving other human beings? Some things that we would certainly consider moral evils today are contemplated by the Bible mm -hmm. and not banned by the Bible. So why, why is that? Well, we have to, uh, and based on what they're talking about and also based on your comment, um, David, the, here, here's the thing that we have to be careful, right? If, if evil exists, that doesn't disprove God, right? Being bad things happening in the world doesn't mean that there, there's no God, right? One could make the argument that bad things happen in the world because God wants bad things to happen. 
one could argue that there's bad in the world because God is both good and evil, or that God doesn't like certain people, or God, like you can make many different claims about God, and it can still be compatible with bad things happening in the world. Where the problem comes in that is evil does not disprove God. Yet, when people claim that God is of a certain nature, then we have to line up, okay, given the description of what you gave us about your God and the actual world that we live in, these things don't seem to be compatible. That's where we get in dicey territory, right? And one could argue that maybe God is all loving and maybe God is all powerful, but yet evil exists because God is not the only player on the field. You can make that argument as well. But then you would have to ask, okay, well, if God is all powerful, why wouldn't he stop this evil being from doing what he's doing? And if you make the argument that this being is somehow out of the purview of God's control, then God is not all powerful. Then that debunks God being all powerful. And then you can say, well, God doesn't want to stop that being, even though he can. But then that destroys the argument that God is all loving, because if God is all loving and he loves us, his love would basically compel him to want to stop that being, which he has the power to do. So he would. So it, it gets very dicey based on the description that you give about God. But evil itself doesn't necessarily disprove God. <laughs> well, let me address briefly first this question of slavery. When we hear the word slavery, Ben, we think of slavery as it existed in the American South. And as you know, that is nothing like the system that existed in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, there was no social safety net sponsored by the state. There was no poverty program. So if the biggest problem I have with here, right, that as an atheist, I would never argue that slavery in the Bible is equal or the same level of slavery that we had here in America. And anybody who tries to uh, compare those two things are talking about two different types of slavery. Yes, they are both slavery. They are both forms of slavery, but they're not the same type of slavery. I would agree here. The problem I have with this argument is, for one, you are claiming to have an all-powerful God. You're claiming to have an all-loving God, a God who wishes but nothing but the good for humanity and good for everyone. And you're going to, on one hand, argue that this type of slavery, this form of slavery, where they didn't have a welfare system and they didn't have anybody to take care of them because they were poor, you're basically making the argument that God is not taking care of these people. And if your argument is God's way of taking care of these people is for them to enter into a form of slavery, any type of slavery, then I don't see how you argue that justifiably. And yet we we gloss over this as if it's just like, oh, because it was a different type of slavery, it's, it, it's not the slavery you're talking about. Yeah, but that still doesn't answer the question. Why wasn't there a welfare system? Why wasn't there plentiful and enough to go around? Because God loves me, right? God loves us. And God would feed those he loves. He He fed the, 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 the Israelites manna. He, he made sure that when they woke up, they had enough food to eat. He did that. He did that. He, he went out of his way to intervene to make sure that the people of Israelite had manna so that they could eat and drink. He led them to a place called the land of milk and honey. He did that. He intervened. He sent angels on multiple occasions in the Bible to intervene, to stop things from happening. He even sent people to do things to people like Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent his angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God intervened many times throughout the Bible. To say that God can't intervene to stop these people from starving or going poor or being broke. Instead, his answer was going to slavery. You will have to make a large leap of faith here. And you will have to ignore so many different factors to justify this argument. But yet, 
They have to, because if they don't find a way to justify this form of slavery, then it questions their whole religious beliefs. And for some reason, they just need to have an answer for everything, even if it's a nonsensical answer. If a man got himself into a situation where he couldn't pay his debts, he could keep his family together and retain his self-respect by selling himself as an indentured servant to his creditor until he could work off his debts and then he would have to be set free. After seven years, he had to be set free in any case. Well, in the Bible, and I don't know, but I consider William Lane Craig to be somebody who spends maybe his entire life defending the Bible and talking about religion and Christianity. He would also have to know about the verses that says how you can beat your slave as long as you don't kill them. You can also talk about how the Bible talks about that if a man wants to be free, he can leave, but his family has to stay in slavery and bondage. Also, the Bible talks about that you can take slaves amongst the people around you, but you couldn't take slaves amongst your own people. Like there are different rules that don't, no way justify the argument that William Lane Craig is putting forth right now. Things that we would consider in any in any common sense fashion in our modern day to be abhorrent. Now, that says nothing about our morality now. Just because we have a certain morality in life right now doesn't mean our morality is right. Morality changes throughout history. What we think is right right now was different than a thousand years ago. And people have different, people have always battled over right and wrong. That's why we have different religious groups bumping heads, right? So I'm not going to say that my morality or my beliefs right now trumps what they were doing in the Bible times. I'm only making the statement that he's making it seem as if that form of slavery was just you working off your debt when we know that's not true. There are many places in the Bible that clearly says that's not true. And like I said, I just gave you an example how a man can leave and work off his debt, but yet his family, if he had a family while he was enslaved, then his family must stay in bondage. We even talk about situations where women are raped, and if they don't scream aloud enough, then both of them are to be stoned. Even the woman who was getting raped could be stoned. Like, we have to stop pretending as if, like, they say that atheists cherry-pick the Bible, but we see religious people cherry-pick the Bible all the time. It's not like one person is the only one cherry-picking the Bible. Other people are cherry-picking the Bible. And the reason that you know that religious people cherry-pick the Bible as well is because religious people disagree with other religious people all the time about the Bible because they are all picking out of the Bible what they value the most and what their interpretation is. And some things take precedent over other things. Just like we see constantly where people are against homosexuality, but yet they still eat shrimp or they mix fabrics even though the Bible says that all sin is equal in the eyes of God. And God explicitly said in the Old Testament that there were sins like mixing fabric and eating um, shrimp and things of that sort. But yet people don't see those things on the same level. People don't even see adultery as the same level of homosexuality. So there's a lot of cherry picking going on. You just have to be honest and call it out for what it is. Uh, let me get to some of the comments real quick. Slavery is a victim sanctuary. <laughs> all right. God intervened on the road to Damascus, yeah, Damascus, blinding Paul. That's another intervention as well, right? Even in the Old and the New Testament, Jesus coming here himself is an intervention. Jesus dying on the cross in the Bible is an intervention on God's behalf. We have to admit that God gets involved all the time throughout the Bible. And to say that he can't do that now or in other cases, is to me, is literally like arguing against the Bible. I'm a rebel, not a slave. I'm a rebel too, brother. I'm right here with you. The rebellion will not be televised. 
if you are impoverished, all you had to do is sell your mortal soul. <laughs> Adios, Javier. Catch you later. Cheers. Cheers, brother. Take care. Much love, Anthony. <laughs> so this was really a form of indentured servanthood. It wasn't slavery as we think of that term. This was actually an anti-poverty program. <laughs> it was an anti-poverty program. Look, I'm not here to judge the ancient people of Israel. I'm not. It's not my place to judge the people that came before me. Different time, different place, different world, different requirements, different culture, different wants and needs. But when you inject God into the circumstance, you change everything. Now, if you told me that this was just their way of addressing poverty without a God, it makes sense to me. But when you inject the all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God, I mean, I, at some point you have to be realistic here. And in some respects, I think it's better than what we have in modern Western culture, which destroys families, ruins people's self-respect because they're not working. Whereas in ancient Israel, a man retained his self-respect. He worked for an income. He paid his debts. He kept his family together. And that to call that slavery is just a gross misrepresentation. We live in a day and age where more and more people are not living in poverty, where more and more people have access to resources, where more and more people have the ability to follow their dreams and they don't worry about what they're going to eat at night or whether or not they're going to get a meal tomorrow. More and more people have access to clean water, plumbing. There, we can go down a litany of different things that they did not have in ancient Egypt. If you took an ancient, Egypt, if you took an ancient Israelite, I'm sorry, ancient Israel, if you took an ancient Israelite and you gave them a choice whether they wanted to live then or now. I can guarantee you that most of them would choose now. If you took one of those indentured servants from that time and asked them would they rather live then in indentured servitude now or live now, I guarantee you they would probably choose now. Let's be realistic here. How far do we have to stretch in order to justify these things? As an atheist, the reason that I'm looking to try to see if somebody can convince me of an argument is because most of the time I hear arguments like this. And to me, this doesn't hold any water. This does not convince somebody to your side because you have to try to do backflips in order to justify some of the things that he's saying right now. And this guy is supposed to be respected. This guy is supposed to be an, an, uh, a well-renowned apologist, but yet he's justifying the type of slavery that went on in the Bible. And we know that you could beat your slave until into their life as long as you didn't kill them. We know this was written in the Bible. But yet, it was humane. It was a way of stopping poverty. Now, the first thing you mentioned, I, I forgot. Homosexual marriage. Yeah, same-sex okay. marriage. With respect to some of these other moral questions. I find it weird that I consider Ben Shapiro to be somebody that at least tries to make logical arguments. You can agree with his conclusions on a wide variety of different political subjects. But at least I feel as if these guys are smart enough to understand certain concepts and to sit here and listen to William Lane Craig say some of the things he just said with no pushback. I'm sorry, but I cannot accept this. The only way that you can accept these arguments, if, if you're blindly looking to accept them, if you have every incentive not to push back. And I just can't buy into it.
I think we need to remember the first premise of the moral argument. If there is no God, then there are no objective moral values and duties. Everything is socioculturally relative. So who's to say that the moral values of a society that discriminates uh, against people and oppresses people is worse than one which is liberal and tolerant? We just sort of assume that the the liberal values um, are the ones that would be objective when, in fact, they're just as relativistic as any of the other ones on atheism. Now, he's right here. There is no objective. Atheists don't have objective morality. We would also argue that Christians don't have objective morality. And if you think Christians have objective morality, I would ask you to get a Baptist, a Methodist, a Catholic, and a Protestant in the same room. And I can guarantee you they would disagree on a wide variety of issues about morality. Right? So I'm not saying that we... And this is something I spoke about earlier. I'm not saying that our morals are superior to the morals of the people that came before us. It's all subjective. It's all about preference. So, no, we cannot judge on what's right and what's wrong or what's worse and what's better. But I can judge you based on what you consider to be objective morality and see the type of God that you're describing and see if he holds up to that description. You cannot confuse me holding you accountable for the God you claim exists as claiming that I'm claiming some kind of objective morality. Now, I do know that there are atheists out there who do. I disagree with them. Atheists cannot justify objective morality. But we're also, I would believe that people who agree with me would also argue that neither can Christians, neither can Muslims, neither can Jews, neither can Hindus. Everybody is subjective because everybody has to interpret their book and their interpretations are biased based on what they believe is best. So if... We need God to be the anchor point for objective moral values and duties. We cannot escape the question when thinking of moral right and wrong, well, what does God think of this? And if God proscribes something, it seems to me that's entirely within his right. If God were to say, thou shalt not eat beans uh, or thou shalt not eat pork, that would be our moral duty, and we should obey it. That is his prerogative as the moral lawgiver and the supreme good. And so if God says, my plan for human sexuality is heterosexual marriage, that's his prerogative. And there is no basis for calling that, I think, into question. Which is weird, because God didn't intend for me to have wings and fly. So he didn't give me the capability of doing so. He didn't, if God exists and he didn't want me to grow wings over time and be able to use those wings to fly, he didn't give me the capability of doing so. God also didn't allow me to be able to transport myself from one place to another place in an instant. He didn't want me to do that. So he didn't give me the ability to, but yet God gave a man the ability to be sexual with another man. He somehow allowed that to be possible in the world. He also allowed for kids to get leukemia or get cancer or whatever the case may be to die horrible deaths or for rape to happen. There are there are way more things that God never gave us the capability to do than the things he did give us the capability to do. And do you have to argue why God chose to allow these things to be possible versus those things to be possible? And you can't differentiate between the two. You cannot give me an argument to decide why God decided that some things were capable and certain things wasn't was off the table, completely off the table. We just don't get the option. What, what 
God never said it's a sin to grow wings and fly, right? Because he didn't have to. Because why? He didn't give us the ability to do so because he didn't want us to do so. So I would argue, why not do the same thing with everything else that you didn't want us to do? Apparently, you can limit us from doing all of those other things, but yet we still have free will. So why not limit a few more things? Couldn't we still have free will? And if you say that we can't have free will, while at the same time not having the ability to choose evil, then what is heaven? Do you have free will in heaven? And do you have the ability to choose evil in heaven? So let's talk about the evolution of morality. And I want to go back to slavery for just a second. So it is true that that Hebrew enslavement, the Jewish enslavement of, of others is really more indentured servitude. And there's a whole section in, I believe it's it's Numbers or Leviticus, I think it's Leviticus maybe, where, where it, it speaks to specifically about the slave who doesn't want to leave and you're supposed to pierce his ear on the doorpost as a punishment for him not wanting to leave and all of this. <laughs> um, but by the same token, enslavement of people who are not inside the the you know, Israelite, inside the Jewish kind of tradition, mm -hmm. that's not proscribed. So the idea of war captives is mm -hmm. obviously taken into account and not banned. So certain things are banned in the Bible, certain things are not banned. Now, the way that biblical believers have practiced over time is that very early in the church's history, they're already starting to eliminate slavery, although not for yeah. people who are captured. And then over time, the West is the first place to eliminate slavery altogether, specifically citing the sections of the Bible that talk about human freedom and the innate value of every human being. I would take Ben's example of this fair if he would also mention that some of the same people who wanted to keep slavery and thought that slavery was justifiable also used the Bible as well. But we're going to overlook that and we're not even going to mention that. Why? I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, I can assume I don't know his mind, but we're going to completely ignore all of the people who thought the Bible justified slavery and used the Bible to justify them owning slaves in America. Why we would ignore that in this argument, I don't know. That's something you would have to ask Ben Shapiro. So is that an evolution of morality or is that a realization of a fundamental principle that was originally given to people who couldn't necessarily understand the full extent of the principle? Oh, I think, I, I think it's the latter and I love the way you put it. I think that's nicely put. Jesus said something very much like this with respect to Old Testament regulations on divorce. Uh, they asked him whether or not it was lawful to divorce a woman for any reason. And Jesus said, Moses allowed you to write a certificate of divorce, but it was not so from the beginning. And he cites then the creation story of Genesis of Adam and Eve and said, but God has put together and let not man put asunder. So what Jesus was saying there was that the law of Moses was a temporary uh, prescription accommodating the hardness of heart of the people at the time, but it didn't represent the perfect will of God. Why would God intervene and allow Moses to write a temporary prescription for something because people had a hardened of heart, but yet God is unwilling to move on other sins or other behaviors. God is unwilling to move. I don't understand why God pick and chooses in the Bible what he will allow and what he won't allow, even though he disagrees with both. It's inconsistent. It's inconsistent. And they say that God is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. So if God is the same always and he cannot change, I already have a philosophical argument against that. Like if God can never change, then he can never, ever 
move from one place to the next place. He has to remain the same at all times. So you can never have uh, action because if God is in, in action, he can never perform an action because that implies change. But why is God picking and choosing which things he will allow that he's against versus things that he will not allow that he's against as well? I, I don't understand that either. For human marriage, which was grounded in the creation story. So how exactly do we determine when we have moved beyond the biblical text in terms of the evolution of that morality? When are we fulfilling uh, a broader goal that was that you know was kind of held back by temporary constraints? And when are we moving utterly beyond it? And again, here I'm thinking of same-sex marriage. So mm -hmm. when it comes to same-sex marriage, the argument is now being made by people in liberal churches, including... See, my point exactly. Even people in churches can't agree with other churches. Whose morality is right? Including people Buttigieg. And you can say, go to the Bible and say, these people are using the Bible to justify the things that they're doing. You can literally use the Bible to justify anything. And if they can do it, why would you assume that you're not also a victim of that? And she's running for president. That basically, Jesus was seeking equal respect for everyone. He cared about the least of these. And the prescriptions on homosexuality were really more, and homosexual activity were not eternal precepts, but were really attempting to crack down on the, yeah. the promiscuity of the time or they were. Yeah, I don't understand why. Okay, let's say that the Bible is against homosexuality, which we know that the Bible teaches against homosexuality, but the Bible also teaches against adultery. How many times do we spend like time arguing the merits of uh, adultery and when adultery should be okay or when the morality have, I, like nobody spends the time like spending as much effort talking about adultery as they do with same-sex marriage. It's like there's this is one of those arguments that we're going to pick and choose, right? Regardless if you are for or against gay sex marriage or gay sex or whatever, like you should also argue why aren't they spending just as much time and having debate panels and stuff about adultery, even though that's a sin clearly in the Bible. Or temporary expedience. Yeah, I, I think that's clearly false. When you look at these uh, regulations, both in the Old Testament and then they're repeated in the New Testament, in the strongest terms in Romans chapter one, um, there's no doubt that Paul is thinking of this as a moral law that has abiding significance. See, but that's not, okay, Paul said that, but when you go to the Bible, Jesus also said, do not think that I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Let no letter, not one letter in the old, uh, in the old law, pass away until um be done away with until heaven and earth passes away so jesus clearly stood for the old testament stood for the old law and wanted the old law to be followed even into the new testament so i'm sorry to say it just because paul said something that was said in the old testament don't mean that we got to overlook what jesus said about the entirety of the old law it's like so you got to apply the same standard to gay marriage as you would mixed fabrics as you would adultery as you would eating shrimp like you got to apply the same thing because Jesus said that himself in the New Testament. It's, it's, I'm a bad content creator, y'all. I'm just bad because I, I can't, I can't accept bad arguments. And I can, maybe I'll make some bad arguments, right? But why are so many people willing to overlook so many bad arguments for the sake of keeping their beliefs or staying in their political side or their religious group? Why do we have to accept subpar arguments? And then people get mad at me or they'll think that I'm trying to belittle or something when I'm just trying to point out the obvious, you know? 
And it's grounded again, I think, in the creation story, that God has created human sexuality, he's created man and woman uh, in such a way that the fulfillment of that relationship will take place within the safety and security of a heterosexual marriage. And that outside of that, um, sexual activity is not to be indulged in. And this is a, a law that God has given us for our good. So I do not think that this is capable of simply being relativized to time and culture. Because he's conveniently overlooking other things in the Bible that iterates that the Old Testament should also be brought over to the new. Yeah, it's like reject the bad arguments. And it's it's frustrating because like I have to argue with everybody. I have to argue with conservatives. I have to argue with religion. I have to argue with atheists. I have to argue with liberals. I have to argue with everybody. And people don't like it when you argue with everybody, right? There's no... It's a small niche of fan people, like fan base for people who argue with everybody. And it's just the way it is. But I want people to know when I speak something, I'm speaking the truth of what I think, not because I want something in return. You know what I mean? <laughs> the, uh, William Lane Craig is worth $2 million, That's why. <laughs> you know, uh, I guess like it pays. I'm not, I'm not saying that his beliefs or what he's doing is not what he truly believes or that he's not really fighting for something he's passionate about. Right. It just so happened that it also pays very, very well. And we just, I just want religious people or people who are Christians. If you want to believe in God, that's fine. But if you are somebody who care about the truth, which you're supposed to care about because the Bible talks about the truth, then you also have to hold these people to a higher standard and not allow them to like, tap dance around the Bible and try to make excuses for certain things that are clearly unexcusable. And if we got to justify a certain form of slavery, I, I just feel like we're in bad territory. So th those are my thoughts on that. Um, I'm sorry for all the people who took the time to unsubscribe because of this video. Um, I'm pretty sure somebody will, uh, but my intention is not to, you know, take away your religion. It's simply to understand. I want to give a huge thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this video. See, if you're anything like me and you care about your privacy, your security, and your data, then you definitely need to be using ExpressVPN. I'm not just saying that. I care about my viewers and I care about myself, which is why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TVs. So it's really no excuse why you shouldn't be using it. On top of that, if you watch different streaming services like Netflix, then ExpressVPN will allow you to have up to 94 different IP addresses in different countries, which will give you access to shows that you don't even have available in your own country. So why not give it a try? Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Javier, and you can get three extra months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash javier expressvpn.com slash javier to learn more one in a million a million the one villain too hot to be in the kitchen out in the melt in the ceiling